The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From the scenic city in Chattanooga, Tennessee, U.S. of A., welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, now heard in over 100 countries around the world. Glad you are here. This is the show where we chat with the world's foremost leaders and leadership experts about the powerhouse business principles of love and care, and we do it to help you transform your workplaces create business impact and make the world a better place. Today is a special treat. Most of us have that one book in our bookshelf that stands the test of time. You know that book. It's got highlights all over it. It's earmarked everywhere. You know, you wrote notes on it in the margins with words like, yes, and five exclamation points next to it. Well, one of my books that fits that description is the topic of today's episode. How many of you own a copy of the late, great Stephen Covey's masterpiece, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Mine is the original copy from 1989, I'm proud to say. And when I read it, it changed my life for the better. And this book has sold over 40 million copies. It's been called the number one most influential book of the 20th century and one of the best-selling books of all time by Fortune Magazine. And guess what? The new 30th anniversary edition is coming out next month with brand new content, including personal insights by Stephen's son, Sean Covey, president of Franklin Covey Education. Well, I tried to get Sean on the show, but he unfortunately couldn't join us. So I thought, let's keep it in the family and bring his brother, Stephen M. R. Covey, to the show to talk about not only his dad's book and, of course, growing up a Covey kid, but you get a bonus. We get to talk to Stephen about his own work and leadership insights based on his own seminal book, The Speed of Trust. Stephen M. R. Covey is co-founder of Covey Link and of the Franklin Covey Global Speed of Trust Practice. He speaks to audiences around the world. And as I mentioned, he is the New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Speed of Trust and co-author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Smart Trust. Good to chat with you again, Stephen. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Hey, thank you, Marcel. It's wonderful to be with you. I've always enjoyed our conversations. Excited for yeah. today. Yeah, likewise. You know, when we chatted... Um, the first time, a couple of years ago, I, I was doing research for my book, and which is now in manuscript stage, but I didn't have a podcast in. So we get a twofer today. I want to talk about your dad's book, but I also want to revisit that conversation we had a couple of years ago about the business principles of practical love and, and, and trust. So let's start with your dad. I mean, he was a legend. Uh, Time Magazine named him one of the 25 most influential people in America at one point. And uh, I know you've been asked this a million times, but I, I can't help it. I got to ask it too. What was it like growing up one of nine Covey kids? <laughs> you know, it was great. It was a lot of fun. You know, one of the things that my dad and my mom did, did so well at was building a, a fun um, unified family culture. So we really liked being with each other and doing things together and, and, and having fun. And they made it that way. And, and, you know, my dad was always teaching as well along the way, but, uh, but the whole experience was just, was great. So I feel very blessed and fortunate to have grown up in, in our home. So I'm guessing that your dad probably ran around the house trying to practice the seven habits on you and your siblings. What was that like? <laughs> I like to say that we were the first guinea pigs for the seven habits you know he tested it on us first seriously i remember uh you know just as a young boy him coming in and talking about learning how to be proactive you know and this was 15 years before 
the seven habits book came out or, or 25 years before the book came out, but he was teaching me to be proactive and teaching me to begin with the end in mind and different habits. And, you know, and so he would test and try his, his ideas out because the premise was that the, if these are based upon principles, they not only should work out with leaders and organizations, they should work in our home. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we were, we were his first guinea pigs and he tried it with us and, and, uh, taught the principles to us. And so that was kind of a, a great bonus as I look back at it now that I was taught this great leadership development right in my home. What a blessing. Yeah, it was. So what about your personal relationship with your dad? What was that like? You know, amazing. Um, because, uh, here's the interesting thing. My dad traveled a lot, you know, with his job, he, he, he wrote and he spoke about what he wrote about. So he was gone a lot and yet it didn't feel like it because he was so present when he was home. And he would also always schedule um, the important things in advance. You know, he kept first things first and the family was the first thing to him. And he would organize his life around family events and he just wouldn't miss them. Instead, he'd miss business engagements, presentations because he'd already planned trips. But, you know, and, and that continued even in our later years as, as us kids grew up and, and we'd sometimes go on trips together as a family. And my dad would, he, I remember one time him coming in and saying, family, we're going to go on a great family trip. We're going to go to Germany. And, and we're like, all right, all right. You know, when, like, you know, you know, in a few months or, and he said, no, three years from now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but he, cause he'd have to plan way ahead, but he would, he'd, he'd organize and, and plan. So, uh, you know, I had a great relationship and you know, what I'll, what I'll tell you, Marcel, and, and I, you know, to all our listeners as well, those that have been influenced by my father's work, seven habits, principles and leadership, what have you, is this, that as good as my father was in public, as a speaker, as an author, and he was very, very good, as good as he was in public, he was even better in private. Mm. As a husband to my mother, as a father to us kids, he was who you thought he was. He was, the, he was the real deal. He had absolute integrity to what he valued. He wasn't perfect. He fell short, you know, but, but he always tried to get back on track. If he ever did, always trying to course correct. But he, I felt loved by him. I felt affirmed by him. And, and he gave me a sense of vision and purpose. And so um, that's maybe the kindest and most accurate tribute I could say is that as good as my dad was in public and he was great, he was even better in private. That's beautiful, Stephen. So this is probably an unfair question because you probably had many, many lessons that you that you learned from your dad. But what what would you say was the greatest lesson? Well, so many, like you say. Um, well, maybe I, I'll give you two. I know you asked for one, but here's two. Okay. The, the one that, in terms of, I saw in my father um, someone who really tried to practice what he taught. He tried to model it. And again, I, as I said, he wasn't perfect. He falls short that someone asked him one time, do you live the seven habits? And he said, yeah, about 80% of the time. <laughs> and, and, and his point was that I fall short too, but I'm always trying to get back on track. And so I saw a model of that and I saw a great listener, someone who really practiced habit five, seek first to understand, then to be understood. I felt that as a child growing up in my home, I felt it as a young man, I felt it as an adult, that he truly cared, loved me, and sought to understand me first. So I saw the modeling. So that was, that was the first thing. I saw the modeling. I felt it, the relationship. In terms of the biggest idea that stays with me today, of all, you know, he's got all these great ideas. The biggest idea that has really impacted me is this idea, that he said that life is about contribution, not accumulation. It's not about what we can achieve and get. It's about what we can contribute, what we can create and contribute and give back. Life is about contribution, not accumulation. That idea is inspiring to me and it always kind of grounds me into what am I all about? Am I trying to contribute or am I trying to accumulate? And it gives me a framework through which to view the world. Yeah, it's amazing how many lives 
that book touched through your dad? I mean, millions of people, including heads of state, CEOs, students, parents, you name it, have learned to integrate these habits in, you know, into their thinking. And, and I mean, I can take my copy off the shelf, Stephen, dust it off and still apply the principles to achieve results. So let's revisit the book for this new generation of people out there that may not really be familiar with it. So for the sake of time, I, you mentioned already one of the habits that I want to, that I want to cover. Okay. So, um, I, I'm also interested in, so I'm going to pick out three habits, but okay. I'm, I'm interested in, in tying in current research and what it has to say to further support what your dad wrote about. So let, let's start with, um, habit number one, which be proactive. So, in that chapter, your dad introduced us to the circle of influence. Who can forget that? Uh, so unpack that for us. So, and what is the data saying now about it? Yeah, yeah, no. Many times I heard my father say, look, seven habits, the foundational habit, habit one is habit one for a yeah. reason. Be proactive. It's the foundation that operationalizes the other six because you got to take responsibility for your life and you got to take initiative. And, you know, so it's really so vital and and um you know be proactive as opposed to be reactive you know act based upon your values rather than just on impulse you know choose your response and so a real practical way of applying habit one be proactive is this idea of the circle of influence and the premise is that look there's two circles there's um that reflect what's going on in our lives. There's the circle of concern, which is the bigger one, the broader one. And it's all the things that are happening to us. It's the economy. It's the weather. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's other people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's my company and my job and all the different things. That's all the things I'm concerned about. A lot of things in life. Within that broader circle of concern is a smaller circle of influence inside of it. In other words, there's some things I can do something about within my circle of concern, but there's other things I can't that are, I can't influence it, but I care about it. Like the, the economy at large and what's going on in our world today with this challenging pandemic and the like, you know, I, I can only do so much. So the whole premise is this, if we as people spend our time and our energy focusing on the circle of influence, rather than the circle of concern, things that we care about but that we can't influence, what happens is that's being proactive. And what happens is our circle of influence begins to grow, to expand, to enlarge. If we're instead a little bit more reactive and focus on the circle of concern, all the things out there that are happening to us, and I got a terrible boss or, you know, and, and I hate what's going on in the economy, all these things, then what happens is our circle of influence inside that circle of concern tends to diminish, to shrink, to get smaller. That's what reactivity does. And so the premise is focus on what you can influence. Focus on what you can do, not on all the things that concern you if you can't influence it, and you'll grow it. And what's amazing to your point, Marcel, my father asserted this, you know, 30 years ago, and, and but it's just been increasingly validated with all kinds of other external data and research, you know, ranging from, uh, you look at Dr. Martin Seligman of, you know, how people, you know, what influences happiness. And he talks about, well, you know, there's genetic factors and there's circumstantial factors, but there's also what really influences happiness is, do you focus on the things that you can control? My father would say the things that you could influence. And when you do, you're far more happy. If you instead focus on the circle of concern, so to speak, you'll be less happy. So happiness flows from focusing on our circle of influence. You see other research, you know, Angela Duckworth um, and her work on grit. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, great work. And, and really grit is habit one, be proactive. It's saying take responsibility, take initiative. My father talked about resourcefulness and initiative. He called it R&I. Resourcefulness and initiative. That's grit. Validated by enormous research. That's yeah. being proactive. That's working in your circle of influence. And then finally, um, Stanford professor, uh, Carol uh, Dweek, her studies on, you know, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. 
And the whole idea is that we can grow, we can expand. And, you, and again, you focus on your circle of influence is a focus on a growth mindset that we can grow and expand our influence and our capabilities and, and our impact versus thinking, I can't, you know, I'm fixed, it's set. And, and um, you know, all of this has just, again, come out in the last 30 years validating this whole idea of being proactive and all its manifestations. And maybe the most practical application of be proactive is the idea of focus on your circle of influence, not your circle of concern. And you watch that circle of influence expand. And uh, I love it. That's awesome, Stephen. Thank you for that. That um, just motivates me just hearing you talk about it. You touched on habit five and that's, that's the one I chose. And I think you and I agreed that uh, for love and action, and the conversation that we're having, this is particularly keen. It's, it's seek first to understand, then to be understood. I love this from a, a leadership standpoint because it's about building trust and, and expressing love for others. Tell us about that one. Yeah, many. I've heard my father many times say the single greatest learning of his professional life is that phrase. It's mm. captured in that phrase. You, you want influence with people. First, be influenced. So here's how. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Because our tendency as humans is tends to be the opposite. We want to be understood. We want to, you know, express our viewpoints. And and um and and so it's not always, you know, second nature to just go in and say, let me understand you first. Usually we want to go the other way around. <laughs> but the irony is we'll have far more influence with people when we first seek to understand them. Plus, not only do we have more influence, it's the right thing to do. It's a better way to live. It's a better way to lead because you show your care for people. You show, you show your concern and your love for people. I mean, a love in action is when people feel understood. That is a gift. It is a gift of not just understanding. It's a gift of care, of concern, of love, of empathy. And, and, um, and the Bonus is you also become more influential with that person when you share. Then let me also now be understood on my ends. You know, I want I have ideas too, but understanding comes first. And 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 uh, and so getting good at this is so important for a leader because it's a differentiator from what most leaders do. You know, most people listen not with the intent to truly and deeply understand. Rather, most people listen with the intent to reply, yeah, you know, to respond. So they're kind of patient, you know, waiting their turn, but in many cases kind of formulating their reply. You know, maybe they don't interrupt, but they might just be, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, and waiting their turn. But that doesn't build trust. That doesn't build understanding. What does is when you truly seek to understand the person, not to judge them, not to evaluate them, because Understanding does not necessarily mean agreement. I might not agree. In fact, I might disagree. I'm just trying to understand the person to their satisfaction. That is a gift of love, and it is a gift of empathy and, and care and compassion to people. And the bonus is you'll also gain far more influence with the person because when they feel understood, they now say to you, Marcel, thank you for understanding me. Thank you for, he thank you for hearing me out. I feel understood. What do you think? What, you know, what's your opinion? And now they're far more open to really listen to you. So that's the power of this one. And it fit, dovetails so nicely into your work, Marcel, and into the purpose of this podcast, Love in Action, because, you know, understanding is that. What, what oxygen is to the body, understanding is to the soul, to the spirit. It gives you air, psychological air. Yeah, yeah. Habit seven is an interesting one for me, Stephen. Sharpen the saw. Your dad said that highly effective people increase their effectiveness by renewing themselves regularly in, in four areas. I'm not going to give it away, but unpack what those four areas are because we're talking about the whole being, uh, the whole person here. That's right. Right. So the metaphor, sharpen the saw, you know, never be too busy sawing to take time to sharpen the saw. So if we sharpen the saw, we can do everything better. So we try to renew ourselves instead of burning ourselves out. And, and, um, and we renew ourselves as whole people in these four areas. You know, the physical, yeah. 
which includes the economic, the social, emotional area, which is your heart, you know, the relationships, the love, the mental, intellectual area, your mind, and then the meaning and purpose area. He called it, you know, the spiritual, the spirit, which is not religion per se, but meaning and purpose and contribution. And so four areas, body, heart, mind, spirit. Yeah. And, and to renew yourself and to um, also develop yourself in those areas and to, you know, keep the sharp, the soft sharp in those four areas, treating people as whole people, not just as, you know, economic beings that just are going to work and to get a paycheck. No, they want to go to work. They want to pay. Yes, we all want a paycheck, but we also want to belong to something and be part of a team and a culture and have relationships and, and of caring. We also want to, so that's our heart. We want to develop our mind and, and our talents and, and be able to, you know, become better and improve and, you know, and then we also want to contribute and to add value and to make a difference in the world. And so when you see people as whole people, it's a better way of engaging them and inspiring them and building trust with them. And, but we got to start with ourselves. We got to focus on ourselves as a whole person and try to engage ourselves and renew ourselves in all four areas, body, heart, mind, spirit. So here's a catchphrase for it that hits the four areas to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy, body, heart, mind, spirit. Those are the four needs we all have as human beings. I love it. Stephen, I got to ask, you know, it's, it's, it's the 30th anniversary of the book. And I, I mentioned this in my introduction, it, it stands the test of time. What do you attribute to its ongoing success 30 years after it was released? Yeah, I think um, a, a couple key reasons. First, the book is focused on principles, timeless principles, as opposed to fads or just practices that will, you know, might come and go. These are timeless principles of effectiveness, you know, integrity and and vision and proactivity and creativity and, you know, things that will stand the test of time and translate across cultures and circumstances and situations. So that's the first thing. It's focused on principles. The second thing is that the book builds from the inside out. So, you know, the private victories precede public victories. And, you know, the first three habits help a person go from dependence to independence. The next three habits help a person go from independence to interdependence. And then habit seven, sharpen the saw, renews all of the other six. And so, you know, there's a sequence to it. And the sequence is inside out. I, before I work, before I try to, you know, work effectively with others, I got to first be effective with myself. Yeah. Inside out, based upon principles. And the final thing I think is, why it's so relevant today is my father had a real gift to make these principles accessible, practical, tangible. You know, so we take a principle of responsibility and name it, be proactive, and then give you tools like circle of influence within the circle of concern and resourcefulness and initiative. You know, take initiative, responsibility, and just made it accessible, practical, tangible. Um, Jim Collins in the foreword that he wrote for this called what my father did. He said, he said, it's like he created a, 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 a an operating system for human effectiveness. And in other words, the pieces were out there, but he brought it together into a holistic framework that made it accessible and tangible, just like kind of an operating system made the computer usable that it wasn't before there was a good browser, a good operating system that made it usable. And, and so these principles have always existed. My father never claimed that he owns the principles. He says, no, they exist. They're out there. What he's tried to do is organize them, frame them, language them, sequence them, make them accessible, tangible, in a sense, create an operating system of human effectiveness. Right, right. Development. Wow. So I mentioned a bonus that you guys are going to get from this conversation because I want to now transition to your work and the, and the book, uh, The Speed of Trust. The copy that I got said that it's been published in 22 languages and has sold over 2 million copies. I, there may have been more by now, but for people just learning about it, 
What, what's the big idea behind the speed of trust, Stephen? And also, you, you told me earlier there's been a, a recently updated edition as well. Yeah, yeah. So the updated edition is same, same concept. I just updated the data, the examples and stories, et cetera. Um, but here's the, the, the big idea is that, you know, that trust is a learnable skill, a competency, it's something we can get good at. And it matters enormously because the tr- trust affects the speed at which we can move and the cost of everything. And think about it. When there's low trust in a relationship or low trust in a, in a, in a team or in a culture, in a company or with customers or in a community, in a family, any, in, any environment, any relationship, whenever there's low trust, everything takes longer to do. Everything costs more. Speed goes down, cost goes up. That is a tax, a low trust tax. It's also painful. It's no fun. It saps energy and joy. But the good news is the converse is equally true. And when that trust goes up in a relationship, when it goes up on a team or in a company, in a culture, in a community, in a, in a family, when the trust goes up, you can do everything faster, cost you less. Speed goes up, cost goes down. It's also joyful. It's energizing. It's fun. And, the, you know, so there's a huge dividend to high trust. There's a huge tax to low trust. And we all kind of intuitively know it. I just ask our listeners, you know, to, you know, just think about a person who you work with and who you trust, what it's like to work with that person. Now compare that to think about a person that you work with when you do, who you don't trust, what it's like to work with that person. It's night and day different, isn't it? Yeah, We all know it. So I'm just trying to take this idea of trust that at one level we all know about and just say, this is, this is jugular. It is so foundational. And it, because it's right in front of us, we've often kind of assumed it, ignored it, taken it for granted. And I'm trying to draw attention to how this is the key principle of, of life and effectiveness, relationships of trust, being trusted as a leader, how it impacts everything else. And that it's something that we can learn how to create and grow. That's the idea behind it. So that begs the question because, I mean, we know what trust does. Um, and we know the benefits of trust. We also know how the lack of trust erodes a, a, a relationship or even a company culture. But and I've heard you say this many times, that trust is common sense, but it's not common practice. So the question is, why not? What are we missing here? Yeah. Um, it's not common practice because... One is that it just sounds so simple. Yeah, of course, I know this already. And, and, um, and so we kind of just scoop past it. We ignore it until, until we lose it. Yeah. And, and uh, I like how Warren Buffett put it. He said, trust is like the air that we breathe. And when it's present, we hardly notice. But when it's absent, suddenly everybody notices. And, and so, so we, we hardly even think about this until suddenly we find ourselves in a low trust environment, a low trust situation, then suddenly we become aware, wow, this is toxic and this is awful. And, you know, like you like to say, you know, we don't, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave bad managers. And, and when there's distrust, you know, we, we leave. And, and, and um, that's the very definition of a bad relationship. And so it's just so kind of like sitting right in front of us that we often just assume it, take it for granted until we lose it. That's one reason. Another is that, you know, we get trapped into what I call, you know, counterfeit behavior. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But the idea that, that uh, it's not so much that we're, you know, flat out violating trust with lying and doing things like that. It's the, it's the counterfeit of the spin and the, and the positioning and, and posturing and manipulating that kind of becomes part of a culture. And, and so we're not so much doing the opposite of the behaviors that build trust, but we're doing these counterfeits that are seductive, that are conducive and, right. and that are not, you know, black and white, but more gray that causes people to lose trust. And, you know, that gets in the way as well. And then finally, we also kind of think short term, not long term. So we're thinking of how can I quickly, you know, get the, hit the numbers and, and, you know, deliver the results now. And sometimes we cut corners and we get results in a way that might diminish or dilute the trust. But then if we do that, what we'll find is that our ability to get results the next time will have just gone down. And, yeah. and there's always a next time. 
And so we got to, you know, we, we sometimes think too short term and we got to think, you know, longer term with trust because then you build a culture and a team and suddenly you do that. Yeah, it takes you a little bit of time. But once you do that, once you build trust, nothing is as fast as the speed of trust. Nothing is as profitable as the economics of trust and nothing is as inspiring as a culture of trust. It brings out the very best in all of us. Yeah. So, yeah, before we jump into the counterfeit uh, uh, behaviors, let's talk about, because you identified in your book 13 specific behaviors, right, that are crucial for building trust as, and, as you said, to developing a culture of trust. So, let's pick up uh, maybe two or three that if I'm a CEO right now listening, this is a starting point for me to develop that culture of trust. What, what, what are a couple of those? Yeah. Yeah. Again, there's 13. I'll just highlight a few that mm-hmm. are vital, especially right now. Yeah. So um, with all that's going on in our world with, the, with this disruption and the crisis and everything else, one would be the very first behavior. I call it talk straight. Talk straight. All the behaviors are phrased in two word expressions. So talk straight, meaning you tell the truth. You call things what they are. You use simple language. And the whole premise is if you can get a reputation of being a straight shooter, of telling the truth, then people will come to this. They, they might not always like what they hear from you, but they've learned that they can trust what they hear from you because you're not going to deceive them or lie or anything like that. You're going to always tell the truth. They might not like what they hear, but they can trust that you, you're talking straight. You're, you're, you're using simple language. Candor is the language of trust, yeah. and you're straightforward. That builds trust enormously. And, and today, and in, in all that's going on, we got to just kind of call things what they are and not kind of skirt it, avoid it, et cetera. And so talking straight is an extraordinary behavior that builds trust. Another one that's so important today, create transparency. Yeah. And transparency means openness, light. I can see through, you know, light is the greatest disinfectant in nature and in life. And so it, when I can see through when I'm open, when I'm transparent, when I'm real, when I'm authentic, then people learn, I can trust this person. You know, they're not operating with hidden agendas and this type of thing. They're, they're real. They are who they say they are. And, and um, so you're vulnerable. And, and uh, you're, because by being open, by being transparent, you do take a risk. You're being more vulnerable. But as Brene Brown says, when, you're, when you lead that with that vulnerability, it builds trust with people. Yeah, they, they, they realize you're real, you're a human, you know, your work, you know, you're, you're a real person and, and, um, and they respond back in kind. So talk straight, create transparency. And I'll give you a third one, extend trust. You got to give it to get it. And, you know, a big part of the speed of trust, I focus on how you build trust through your credibility. You know, you are trustworthy, you're credible, your character, your competence. And that is the starting point. But it's not enough because, Marcel, you could have two trustworthy people working together, both trustworthy, and yet no trust between them if neither person is willing to extend trust to the other. You could have two trustworthy teams or departments working together, and yet no trust between them if neither team or department is willing to extend trust to the other. So it's not enough to be trustworthy. That's the kind of table stakes. That's the starting point. We also have to be trusting. And we have to be willing to give trust to people. Now, again, I'm not saying just blindly trust anyone and everyone. I call it smart trust, you know, use good judgment, but find the ways as a leader, as a person to appropriately, smartly extend trust to people. Because what it does is it does several things. One is it inspires them. It brings out the best in them. They want to rise to the occasion. They want to perform better for you. And they also will tend to reciprocate. They give it back to you. So you want to be trusted as a leader? Trust people. They'll tend to trust you back. When you don't trust them, they tend to not trust you back. And, you know, there's a reciprocity of trust and of distrust. We need to get it working for us. And, you know, we do it with the expectations and accountability. So it's a smart trust. But extending trust is one of the key behaviors that will help build it today. Okay, so this is really important because for each one of those three, there's a counterfeit version of that. So let's start with talking straight. What's the counterfeit behavior for for talking straight? The counterfeit to talking straight is the spin. It's the twisting and the posture. See, I would say this, the opposite of talking straight is flat out lying. 
And we all know lying doesn't build trust. You know, you tell the truth, you build trust, you lie to strip. We know that that's, that's straightforward. That's common sense. But why common sense is not always common practice is because the counterfeit is what disguises itself as talking straight. And that's when people sugarcoat or they spin or they position or they posture or they tell you what they want to hear. They can't tell half truths or partial truths. It's when someone technically tells the truth, but they leave the wrong impression. You know, you could be technically accurate and completely misleading. And as a result, trust will go down. And, and I find sometimes in, in companies and in cultures, the entire culture is just filled with spin. Everyone's kind of spinning yeah. and they're not lying, but boy, they're just spin going on every which way. And, and that's what trips us up. You know, the spin more than the lying is that counterfeit that trips us up. That's the, for talk straight. For create transparency, the openness of light, it's the hidden agenda. So it's not that you're covering everything up and hiding everything. No, you say, hey, here's what we're trying to do. That's true. But there's a whole nother piece of it that you're not opening up. You're, you're hiding, you're holding back the hidden agenda. And, you know, by definition, people don't necessarily see the hidden agenda, but they usually sense it, smell it. And at some point it often comes out and they learn, gosh, yeah. You know, they said that here's why we're trying to do this reorganization, but they got another agenda behind it. And when you're not transparent with people and you don't give the why behind the what, people will bring their own meaning and interpretation to it. They'll ascribe intent to you. So what can you do as a leader? Declare your intent. Be open, be transparent, give the why behind the what versus kind of you do it, you do it partially, but you have this huge hidden agenda that you don't give, but everyone kind of senses it. And that causes people to lose trust. And finally, on extend trust, you know, the opposite is you withhold it. You just flat out don't trust anyone. The counterfeit is kind of the, the fake trust, the false trust. It's when you tell people, hey, I trust you. But then your behavior says, no, I don't, because you, you hover over them. You know, you micromanage them. You uh, snoopervise their very, every move and activity. And then and the net effect of your behavior says, I stand and I trust you, but I don't really. By, by my hovering over, overing people. And, you know, it's kind of a leadership style of, of command and control. But you become benevolent about it and, and kind and, and, and the like. But, but still the paradigm is kind of I'm the boss, you're the subordinate. And that's how people feel versus, you know, true empowerment, true extending trust to people with expectations and accountability. That looks and feels different. But people are afraid to give up control. And, and, and you know, they're afraid to extend trust truly. And so it's kind of a partial or a fake or a false trust as opposed to a real extension of trust. And those are some of the counterfeits. And I think the biggest challenge is the counterfeit looks good. You know, like counterfeit money looks good. Might be, looks real, but at the end of the day, while it might be socially acceptable, it won't build the trust. It will get in the way. And that trips us up maybe even more than the opposite of the behaviors. So for clarification, if I'm acting out in these counterfeit behaviors, do I, am I aware of it? Or are these behaviors flying below the radar? Or am I aware that this is going on? Maybe it's a blind spot and I just act like this as if this is normal behavior. I don't know. Talk us through that. Yeah, honestly, Marcel, it could be both. Sometimes you may not be aware. You might be trapped in a culture. Everyone's spinning. So you're doing it too. And again, your intent is not bad. You're just kind of doing, you know, you, you learn, you might learn in a certain culture, hey, you got to come in, you got to present, present the best case scenario of everything, the rosy scenario, or else you really get taken to task. Yeah. And we all kind of just do it. And we, we kind of just go with it. And so I find most of the time we're not that conscious and aware that we're trying to manipulate and do this. Occasionally, someone might be trying to manipulate. But in most cases, it's almost like it's a cultural norm that everyone kind of does this. And But I, I will also acknowledge there could be someone that is a little bit, you know, manipulative, that's kind of very aware and they're trying to play the game and they know I can't lie, but I sure can twist it. So I think it's a combination of both. But I think the insight you're bringing is that sometimes we're not even fully aware that we've fallen trapped 
into counterfeit behavior because it's right. just so endemic in the culture. Everyone's doing it. We start doing it too, not with bad will, but just because it's what people do. And I yeah. think that that's what often trips us up. Yeah, and I, I agree, Stephen. And that's 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 what we need to we need to break the patterns that keep reinforcing these these uh, these toxic behaviors. But because a lot of the times we may not be aware, it's a blind spot, and we need to address those blind spots. Let me give you one quick yeah. example. Sure. So this was when Alan Malawi got in as the new CEO of Ford. Yeah. So he comes in and he inherits a team and a culture. This was you know during the global financial crisis and. They're losing money hand over foot, and and they they hold their team meeting, is executive team. They talk about all their projects. Everyone puts up a status report on their projects with a red, yellow, or green, you know, slide. You know, and it's intuitive. Green means everything's good. Yellow, there's concerns. Red, we got problems. First meeting, you know, he's one week on the job. First meeting, three hundred twenty-three slides go up. They're all green, all of them. You know, and then a week later. Every slide goes up in this meeting, over 300, all green. One week later after that, so three weeks on the job, every slide again, all green. After three straight weeks of this, he says, hey, team, I've got a, a little bit of a disconnect. It's three straight meetings. We put up every single slide over the last three weeks, shows that all our projects are green, perfect, you know, going perfect. Here's my disconnect. We're going to lose... $18 billion this year. Surely there's things that are happening. I invite you to get real, be authentic, talk straight, confront reality. So he goes to the next meeting, you know, a week later, very first slide right out of the gates, Mark Fields, the head of North American operations, puts up a red slide. And now Malawi sees that and he begins to clap. He says, Mark, that's great visibility. Tell us what's happening. And so we can talk about working about this because we can't manage a secret. And now, here's the thing is everyone else, the rest of the meeting still put up their green slides because people wanted to make sure that Mark Fields was still there the next day, that he showed up to work, that he wasn't let go and fired because, you know, in the old culture, he might have been. And here's the point. From that day forward, they began to get real. And these meetings, you saw red slides, yellow slides, and some green ones. It changed the whole culture. Alan Malawi said the day the culture began to change at Ford was when Mark Fields put up a red slide. And what had happened is the culture, these were not bad people. They were just caught in a culture of counterfeit behavior mm. where you put up the green slide. That's what you did because if you bring bad news, you know, that's not the place to do it. And you don't, they don't want to deal with that. You know, solve it before you do it. But they weren't getting to the real problems. They got caught in the counterfeit behavior. Good people caught in a culture of counterfeit behavior. And he changed that into a high trust culture with authentic, real, straight talk behavior. Mm. Yeah, I love that story. Steven, if I'm the CEO or a high-level HR person in my organization, how do I even begin to, to put down a strategy to measure trust? Yes, well, trust is a perception. You can measure perceptions through anonymous surveying. But I think the first thing is this. First thing is you make it an explicit objective to build a high-trust team, a high-trust culture. In other words, you, you declare your intent. We not only want to get results, we want to do it in a way that builds trust. And we're going to measure the results and we're going to measure building a high trust team in a culture. So you declare your intent to make the creation of trust an explicit objective. We want to, we want to make, and, and you, tend to, you tend to want to measure what matters to you. And you're saying trust matters to us, so we're going to measure it. So you declare your intent. This is an explicit objective. Let's, let's build trust. And then, you know, trust is a perception. You can measure perception with anonymous surveys. And you can actually get kind of a, a snapshot of, of, a, of a baseline of where you're at with the level of trust, the perception of the trust that people have in their leaders and their team and their culture. And then it's not just important to know kind of the level of trust, but also the components, why it is what it is. Because it's one thing if there's, let's say, a perception of lower trust. It's one thing if it's because people aren't quite sure if the leaders or the company is honest. That might be one issue, but what if the issue is that we're not delivering or performing, getting results? Or what if the issue is we're self-serving? We don't care that our people, it's not mutual benefit, not win-win. You know, these are all different issues. So you want to know why it is what it is, but you can measure it with a framework and a language and a process 
similar to how someone might measure engagement. And you can get feedback and see, wow, here's where we were on trust. Here's our baseline. And now as we are improving these behaviors, talking straight, creating transparency, extending trust, we're actually moving the needle and trust is going up. And that matters to us because we've declared why it matters. And so that's the way you'd go about thinking about it. I have used your 13 uh, behaviors so often as sort of a baseline in a lot of my workshop and, as workshops and, and training for them to see what to shoot for. You know, what's, yeah. what's the high bar here? Uh, and so I always appreciate that coming from you. So, Stephen, we have this tradition where we ask our guests to weigh in on the principles of love in action against its counterpart, which I, I feel is fear. And so here we are, it's 2020 and fear is still prevalent in, in how organizations and businesses are managed. And yeah, we keep finding the evidence. You know, you wrote a whole book on how principles of love and care lead to high trust. Right. So, so the magic question here is why do people still lead through fear and control in this generation that we're in? Yeah, well, for many, it's because it's what they know. They're scripted in it. They're trained in it. They're, they're maybe even good at it. It's what they grew up with and it's what they're good at and so forth. So that's one. Another is they, they just feel a need to be in control. And they think that that's what management is, you know, being in control. And it's kind of a misinterpretation because you want to always manage things but lead people. And we turn too often try to manage people as if they over things. And so it's the control mindset, the efficiency. Another for many is that they have a scarcity mentality. They think there's only so much out there. And if someone else gets the credit, the recognition, the pay, then there's less for me. And then, and then, uh, and finally, sometimes our people are just not quite sure if they know how to lead in a different way. And, and, and they're not quite sure how to lead with trust and with love. And, and, you know, how to be a servant leader, how to be, you know, these different things are because they've been scripted, trained in these other directions. And they want to make sure it doesn't go wrong and bad. And, and you know, and, and they're going to be held responsible. What if it doesn't work? You know, variety of different reasons. Some that we just don't know how. Some that might deal with our insecurities. Some that might be deal, deal with the fact that this is what we're good at or what we're scripted in and trained in. And so, you know, there might be some ill will in some of it with some people. I think too, more often it's that we don't necessarily know how to do a better path and a better way forward. But I think increasingly with all that's going on in our world, with the change, with the disruption that's hitting us from every angle, even apart from this pandemic, all that's happening, combined with the fact that you got multiple generations coming up, millennials, Gen Z, that expect a different type of leadership, combined with the need for collaboration and innovation and new and different ways to manage this disruption, it's going to require a shift in the leadership away from fear and control into trust and inspire. Your word would be love and a different way of leading that is more relevant for our times. But, you know, we're deeply scripted in the other. It's really a relic of the industrial age that we're emerging out of. And so that relic, it's hard to get rid of the relics. And, and, and the relic is the old style of leadership, which is based upon fear and control versus trust and inspire. Mm. And, and so we've got to shift the paradigm and we've got to give people the tools and the skills and say there's a better way to lead that's more relevant for our world today. Back in my corporate days, when I was, a, I, I was an HR person for almost 20 years, talent management, um, and I worked for a lot of reactive command and control type of organizations that instilled fear in the minds and hearts of people. And you know what? It worked. People were afraid to lose their jobs. And so it worked for the short term though. Um, and, uh, and as the talent development person, I was also in charge of exit interview data. And every one of those organizations that I would uh, collect the data for why people were leaving. Well, by the way, one of them had a 60% turnover. That was a very fear-induced organization with a top, very top-down toxic uh, structure. And, um, and every time I looked at the patterns of why are people leaving, the top five reasons 
one of the top five reasons always pointed to the C-suite and sometimes to the executive, him, him or herself. So I'm thinking, you know, we need to kind of shift, like you said, we need to shift the, the, the mindset, sort of the mentality of um, what a true leader is. And I think, that, I think that we need to stop rewarding the behaviors that uh, keep flowing to the top in the leadership ranks of what we think a true leader is or is supposed to act or behave. So how do we go from fear to love and care, which leads to high trust? Is there a, a, a first step um, as an individual leader? Yeah. Um, first of all, I got to just comment. Marcel, you are so right. Um, everything you just framed there of what, what is happening. And, and you're also very right of that. Why do people still do it? Because it works. And then you said in the short term. Yeah. It works in the short term, but not in the long term and not with all stakeholders or not with the whole person. So they leave, they turn over, they leave, et cetera. So I think on the same basis, we need to reframe that how we measure success, which is both short and long term, and it's both results and the culture. So it's the golden eggs and it's the healthy goose in the Aesop's mm. fable. And it's not just short-term golden eggs that you can get with command and control. It's got to be the golden eggs and the healthy goose. And we got to show that it's not just the right thing to do to trust and inspire to love. It is the economic thing to do. We need to make a business case for why this is better, why this matters. And, and, you know, and because it's very clear that I can make a, you know, a moral case. I can make a, the right thing to do case, that's the right thing to do because people are people are human beings. And I want to make that case. And in addition, I think we need to make an economic case that this is a better way to lead for the organization and for all stakeholders and, and to make that strong so we measure it differently. So that'd be one thing is you've got to frame it in those terms so that you reward it. And then you start to build the culture and the ecosystem around leading the right way and not the short-term command and control way. And then I would say the second thing then is, is we need leaders to model what we're talking about. And if one person can do it, then another person can learn from that person and they can live forever. Because right now we've got plenty of models under the old command and control style. And they've seen people get rewarded for it and the like. We need to create models under the trust and inspire style where they get results and build the culture and build the engagement and the inspiration. And they start to say, this is a better way to lead. And if he or she can do it, then I can do it too. And, and so we can be that person. We can model this. Even in a command and control culture, you could build your team into a trust and inspire team that gets results and that builds the culture and the engagement and the trust on the team. And then people start to look to you. We need models who can then become mentors. We need to begin to shift this, but it's all in our circle of influence. Back to my father's work. So we start with ourselves. Let's look in the mirror. Let us become that kind of leader for our people and let it ripple out from there. And let's watch the impact we can have. If we get enough of us doing this together, we'll shift the culture and we'll shift the style of leadership that's needed today. Yeah. And so if you're listening, you're a leadership practitioner, you're an HR person, and you have to have those crucial conversations in the C-suite. Just remember, it might take a few, not might, it will take a few seasons for culture change to develop. Be patient. And, but remember that your role is to really, to really convince and bang on the drum that this is not a short-term fix. It's a long-term solution for your company, your organization to become sustainable. Uh, it may, and it may take a few seasons for that to happen, but it's well worth it in the end. It's worth it in the end. And the end is not as far away as you think. It can happen faster than you think. Right, right. And always forget, don't forget the business, the business reason for it, because that's the case that you just said, Stephen, that you have to make the business case. And you can, you can. You, you absolutely can. And we need to. And too often we've kind of said, this is, a, you know, this is the right thing to do. I love that argument. It's not enough. It needs to not only be the right thing to do, it needs to be the economic thing to do. Yeah. And when you converge that, when you converge the right thing to do with the economic thing to do, that is an idea whose time has come. And I think trust and inspire is an idea whose time has come. In your words, love and action. 
<laughs> I love it, Stephen. You're so inspiring to us. So we end our episodes with two final questions for our guests to kind of speak authentically, authentically to our listeners. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now in the times that we're in that you would like us to know? What's tugging at my heart is how we're in a world that's becoming increasingly polarized, distrustful, where, you know, you know, filled with, uh, you know, division and acrimony. And we're not going to be able to solve our problems if we remain in this environment. We, we've got to move to understanding. We've got to move to really extending trust to each other, being able to value our differences so we can use our differences as strengths, build trust so we can collaborate, and then ultimately innovate and create solutions for our challenges. So that's on my mind is that we've got to counteract a, you know, a distrust world. Distrust is contagious, and that's happening right now, but trust is also contagious. So we've got to counteract a low-trust world, and I think that's vital for us to be able to solve our problems going forward. Love that's it. on my mind. Love it. Stephen, you get to end this conversation your way with one thing, one takeaway for us to, take, to, to bring home with us. What would that be? It would be simply this. Look in the mirror. It is very easy to kind of take this whole trust message and say, yeah, when he changes, when she changes, when the company, when my boss, this and that. And that might be all true. But that's your circle of concern in some ways. And, or maybe it's on the fringe of your circle of influence. But if we all look in the mirror and say, what can I do to increase trust in me so that I'm more credible as a leader? I have more clout, more influence because of my credibility, the trust that people have in me. And how can I extend trust to others? I can be the catalyst. Marcel, it takes two to have trust, but it only takes one to start. And each of us can be that one. So I'm inviting each of us to become the catalyst in our lives, in our relationships, on our teams, in our cultures, to help bring about a renaissance of trust. I'm not naive to this. It will take time, as you suggested, but we each have it within us to, be, to create the ripple effect wherever we stand and to ripple out from the inside out. So that's my charge and my challenge to all of us is uh, let's look in the mirror. Let's start with ourselves. Amen to that. Stephen, if people want to get a hold of you and learn more about Franklin Covey, uh, the global speed of trust practice that, that you have, share a little bit about what you're doing there and uh, how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, you, uh, you can go to speedoftrust.com speedoftrust.com. There's a lot of tools, insights, and videos, things you can do to apply and, and uh, you know, really go deep. Um, you can get the book, The Speed of Trust, anywhere, and that will go deep in those 13 behaviors you mentioned, Marcel, that are so critical. You can also see measurement tools, other things at the speedoftrust.com website. And you can, you know, follow me on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, these types of things. So I'd love to, to engage with people that want to help bring about this renaissance of trust. It's been a pleasure as always and an honor. I mean, every time I talk to you, it's like uh, listening to a good old sermon by a preacher that I grew up with and uh, I'm a better man for it. So I thank you for your wisdom and your time today. Thank you, Marcel. I admire and appreciate you very much. I love what you're doing and help bring about love and action. I hope that this idea of trust and inspire can be a catalyst to help achieve that end. Thank you so much for joining us today. and. My special thanks once again to Stephen M. R. Covey for taking us back and helping us to celebrate the importance of his dad's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Get your hands on the 30th anniversary edition due out next month, as it includes brand new insights by Sean Covey. Today's episode was produced by One Stone Creative. Check them out for all your podcasting needs at One Stone Creative. Net. And finally, if you'd like to sponsor an episode of the Love and Action podcast, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me personally at Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club. Next week, I'll sit down with Monica Warline, research scientist and co-author of Awakening Compassion at Work. Until then, don't forget... Love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. The choice is yours. 
Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.